This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon, this is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. The Splendours of Malaysian World Textiles is an exhibition that features a comprehensive trans-regional representative collection of Malay textiles by collector and art historian John Ang. So the exhibition will feature the complete set of 12 major categories of Malay textiles, which will be represented through 650 individual pieces and is regarded as one of the largest of such collections. So the exhibition is going to kick off this weekend for three months it will also feature workshops, lectures, before finally culminating in a catalogue that is set to be published hopefully in 2023. John joins me now to share more. Welcome, John. How are you today? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me, John. So uh, I must say that uh, I just want to start off by saying that I grew up in Johor Bahru. And so reading that your great-grandfather was Tan Hyok Ni, you know, uh, someone who, I, that name is so familiar, you know, the name that's, uh, the street that's named after him is somewhere I used to go practically every week <laughs> to, with oh, my really? parents. <laughs> yes, it's so fascinating. Um, and it's such a delightful thing for me to hear about. Um, I thought we could just start off a little bit just by talking about your great-grandfather. He was, of course, a textile trader in the mid 19 century, a very influential figure in Johor's history. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Uh, yes. I've read a lot about his history. Uh, one of my cousins has written a book about him. And um, he, he was an adventurous, pioneering character. Um, when he was 13, uh, he wanted to go on an adventure. So he hopped on the first boat to, to Southeast Asia, not really knowing where he would land. And he actually landed in Pahang and worked in the tin mines there. But he didn't like it so much. So he moved to Singapore and uh, he landed in Teluk Blanga. And that's where, you know, the other Teichu compatriots introduced him to the textile trade. And he started selling textiles to um, Istana Lama that was in Teluk Blanga. And at that time, Temenggong uh, Abu Bakar was living there. And uh, actually his father, Ibrahim. So he asked his son, you know, we got a textile merchant waiting outside. Can you go and, you know, look at the textiles? And they struck up a really good friendship because both of them were about the same age, Tan Yong Ni and Abu Bakar. Mm-hmm. And they, dis, you know, they, they discussed about their future and, you know, wondered, he, he expressed, Abu Bakar expressed his desire to become sultan. And, you know, Temenggongs cannot be sultans, right? Yeah. Um, but he had this vision that he had all this land in Johor and they could develop it and they could get the money. And with that money to support him, he could one day be sultan. So Tan Yong Ni also, you know, he was a businessman. He was very interested in this deal. And so he got the Sungai Surats, um, which was the, you know, the Kanju rights to develop 75% of Johor land. So he called all his uh, friends in, in, in Chaozhou, in Suatao, to come over. You know, about a few hundred thousand people came and developed the land. And then they started growing pepper and then Gambia and then later opium. And both of them became very rich um, over the few years. That was in the, the mid 19th century mm-hmm. to late 19th century. Mm-hmm. So Abu Bakr got uh, enough money to build his own ship and he traveled uh, he was the most traveled sultan in the Malay world. And he went to England several times to, um, he, he went to um, uh, the Middle East, uh, to Turkey, 
and uh, in in England he met Queen Victoria and they became very good friends because Abu Bakr was actually an Anglophile and he he could speak excellent English. Um, I think Mr. Longsbury was his teacher from St. Joseph's. So he was well-trained. And the queen said, it's the first uh, sultan that I feel is a gentleman. <laughs> and um, decided that uh, she could knight him sultan. And uh, his title wasn't that well-received when he came back because, as you know, he's Bugis and he's Temenggong. Uh, but he actually um, got his uncle to go to Riau to meet meet the great historian there who traced his lineage to prove that he had the right to become sultan. Right. So, you know, he became sultan and he started the new Johor Bahru. And of course, um, my great, uh, my great, great grandfather moved to Johor and started his textile business along Jalan Tan Yeok Ni and the, the textile shops are still there. Yeah. I mean, they don't belong to him, but you know, the, the, later generations took over. But the temple he built is still there. Yes, and there's also a museum, or there, there used to be yes. a museum. Yes, there still, there is, a museum. still yes. is a museum there. And, you know, I know there's some murals, you know, near the OCBC bank, you know, uh, talking about the history and the story of your great-great-grandfather. So it's really lovely to hear. And I, I bring that up only because there is that connection with textiles, of course, right? And also uh, connecting to some of the things that you are doing now. And, I mean, I was also reading that um, your great-great-grandfather, he also supplied fabrics for the Sultan at the time. Yes, very interesting because... When I was at the National Museum in Singapore, I chanced upon a photograph of um, a lady who looked like Queen Victoria. Okay. Uh, and I thought, mm, Queen Victoria, what she wear? She's wearing a, a kain malayu. It's, it's a it looked like a songket, right? So I thought it was interesting. When when I looked closer, it says uh, Sultana Khadija Kanu. So um, I said, who is she? And then I found out uh, she is the um, wife of uh, Sultan Abu Bakr. And uh, later I, I, I investigated the textile she was wearing and I realized that I have some of the textiles too. And then I was wondering if my great-great-grandfather sold that textile to them. I, I, I looked through my textile collection and indeed uh, it was the same textile. It kind of had that kind of synergy that made me really excited. You know that I'm I'm reviving this uh, this tradition of uh, uh, connect this connection with textiles, and then came uh, the Queen, mm. our present Pamaisuri Agong. Um, she is the great great granddaughter of Sultan Abu Bakar. Okay, all right. So we are the same generation. So she saw me post his picture on Facebook, and she asked. Um, uh, what do you do? And I told her I collect textiles. She says, we must connect because I'm into textiles myself and our, and our, you know, our ancestors were into textiles. So I flew all the way um, from Taiwan. I was living in Taiwan then to uh, Bentong in the prison there in Pahang to, to visit her because she, was, she had this wonderful program where she trained a thousand prisoners how to weave, mm -hmm. uh, to revive the art. And... And then um, after that, um, I went on a state visit to Kelantan and Tringanu with her, and we became friends. Um, so it's it's an interesting journey of how you know after almost three hundred years, we've revived the textiles uh, that our ancestors were interested in. 
I know that's so fascinating, and and I was reading that um, you know you were fairly young when you first sort of like uh, you know saw your first fabric, and and you said that um, fabrics are able to tell stories that link the past to the present, isn't it? I mean, maybe you can elaborate on that for our listeners. Well, I'm very interested in detective stories and detective movies, right? <laughs> and so that that kind of uh, textiles are actually a clue to reveal stories that are not revealed in history books. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I see, I, I just did a video about the double green line mystery. I bought a textile that has, has these two green lines on the borders, right? And um, I noticed that the only textiles, other textiles that I have that has these two green lines are Cham Cambodian, the Champa people in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. They produce these uh, beautiful textiles with two green lines. But the one I have is Malay. I can tell because it's a plain weave, whereas the Cambodian one is a twill weave, where the front and back is a different color. The Malay one, the front and back is the same color. So I couldn't figure that out. How come the Malays were producing Cambodian-style textiles? So it intrigued me to do the research. So I went to the Cham village in Vietnam to check it out. And they were indeed weaving textiles with a double green line. So I traveled to different places and I discovered that um, in the jungles of Kalimantan, I found a piece in in Kapas Hulu, right? That's um, the extreme uh, west of East Kalimantan. So it's near central Kalimantan in the jungle area, south of Kuching. I found a piece with a double green line. And then um, I saw another piece from Natuna, with a double green line. You know where Natuna is? No, I don't, unfortunately. Okay, so most Malays don't know, even though it's a Malay island. Um, the people there speak Kelantanese okay. because um, a lot of Kelantan uh, traders uh, went over there before they went to other islands and it was part of the Bugis Riau Islands. Okay, all right. So it's south of Vietnam and okay. that's where the Champa traders um went to rest, and then later they intermarried with the people there. And then from there, they went to West Kalimantan to Pontianak, and probably they traded there, and that's how the cloth went to the jungles in, in Kalimantan. And then I found some in, in Comoring. So in Comoring, Comoring is next to Palembang. Okay. I also found some in Palembang. So how come you have Champa textiles in Palembang? The, you know, Champa people are very well connected to the Kelantanese. Um, if you fly to the airport in Kelantan, the region where the airport is is called Pinkalan Chepa. That's right, yes. So Pinkalan is port and Chepa is Champa. So the first sultan of Kelantan, Long Yunus, uh, claims um, uh, Champa ancestry. Mm, okay. So the charm and Kelantan connection is very little investigated, but they have a strong connection with each other. Many people in Kelantan whom you ask, they say, oh, our grandparents said, we are related to the charms. So when I found that out, it was interesting because um, the, the, the Tringanus uh, uh, state or um, region of Basut used to be part of Kelantan. And Basut was actually started, uh, was called Kampong Palembang. Okay. So there was a lot of Palembang people who migrated from Palembang to that area and they connected probably with the Kelantanese and the Champa people. So that brought the connection as well. Then as I continued investigating the double green line, I found that the 
the patterns of the textiles um, resembled uh, the Minangkabau textiles from Batu Sangka. And I said, how could that be? Because from Minangkabau to get to Cambodia, you have to cross the mountains, then you have to cross the Straits of Malacca, then you come all the way south through Singapore, and then go up again. It's a long journey. But if you know the Minangkabau people, they have this Marantau spirit. The men have to travel overseas to make money before coming back, right? So they travel. They were traders. And the place they went was Hatian. So where is this Hatian? You know, then I discovered Natuna, Anambas, Tambelan, all these real islands where there were were charm people. And then now there's Hatian. So I investigated and I found that Hatian is south of Vietnam. It was a port city opened by the Chinese. And it was actually like a Singapore of the past because it was a central area where all the traders went. It had a beautiful bay that um, prevented the storms from uh, affecting the ships. So it was a safe uh, place to land, uh, to to dock their ships. So uh, a lot of Minangkabau traders um, went there and set up a kampong Minangkabau there. And the Champa people were there. And the Malay chef, uh, have you heard of the chefs? The chefs? No, I have not. I never heard of them too. But these textiles led me to the chefs because they're a group of Malays that live in Cambodia and married the Cambodians. They don't speak Malay. They only speak Cambodian. And, um, uh, but they come from Palembang. They come from Minangkabau. They come from Tringanu. They come from Kelantan. And they mix and intermarried. And they married mostly the the the, uh, the Khmer people and they converted to Islam. So they are Muslims, but they're different from the Chams. But some of their textiles that they produced were quite similar. So I managed to discover all this through that connection. And this is not written in history books. Yeah, I was just thinking that, yeah. And the reason why is because um, the people I checked out in Anambas, uh, in the Real Islands, say that the Cham people have assimilated so much with the Malay culture that uh, they forget their charm. So nobody has written about them. And all of this just from one piece of textile, which you noticed had (laughs) a different order. (laughs) And and it took me to different places, right? I couldn't believe when I was in Vietnam, the village I went to, everyone was speaking kind of like Kelantani style Malay. They were eating uh, things like laksam, uh, you know, all the Malay uh, roads, all the roads had Malay names on it. It looked like Malaysia, not Vietnam. Right? Mm. So <laughs> that was very interesting to me too. And, and the thing is, very few Malay people know this. And mm. I thought, you know, through this exhibition, I can share uh, a, a greater part of uh, the Malay identity. Mm. Uh, and I think it would be interesting. It's actually, by doing this exhibition, it's like a gift to, to my friends in Malaysia. Yeah, because as as you guys have, as you have said, you know, it's it's textiles of the Malay world. It's called the yes. Malay world, not of Malaysia, for example, because it incorporates all the different uh, Malay communities in Southeast Asia. Yes. Okay. Um, let's just go for a quick break, John. When we come back, uh, let's talk about some particular pieces. You know, some of the unique finds uh, that you have uh, accumulated or you know that you've collected. I'm speaking today to John Ang. He's an art historian and a collector. He's talking to me about the splendors of Malay world textiles, which is an exhibition that will feature the complete set of the twelve major categories of Malay textiles. It's going to be represented through 650 uh, individual pieces. It's happening over here at Menara Ken starting this weekend. We'll have more after this quick break. 
break. You're listening to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me today is John Ang. He's an art historian. He's a collector. He has collected a complete set of the 12 major categories of Malay textiles, um, just among some of his collections, actually. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that, John. Uh, and all of this is going to be featured in an upcoming exhibition, which is happening in Menara Ken, starting from this weekend. Uh, now, John, I do know that, you know, when you started collecting, you actually started off with Indonesian uh, textiles before you started focusing on Malay textiles, right? Which I believe you said uh, had so little information about that. What were some of your first acquisitions? And and tell me about, you know, how you how you actually researched them. I mean, you've got a, a background in art history, of course, but, you know, how do you, you know, discover these things? How do you learn about it? How do you do your research and all of that? Well, I can remember one textile that um, the Malays called Tengarong. It comes from Trenganu. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, actually, I, I, I got interested in it through a catastrophe. Um, I, I bought one from Indonesia, thinking that it was an Indonesian textile. But it had an oil stain, so I soaked it in uh, uh, dilute uh, you know, detergent and waited overnight. The next morning, I was so excited, I got up to see what the textile would look like. So I put my hands in the bucket and pulled the textile out. It was all in shreds. Oh, no. Only the gold threads were left. And I said, oh my God, what did I do with this textile? Uh, oh no. But then it got me very much, uh, it made me more interested in the textile. Okay. And, um, and then I said, when I was in national, uh, the National Museum in Singapore, I saw this picture of Khadija Kanum wearing a, a baju with a textile, the same textile. So it got me, you know, even more interested. So I had, at that time, I didn't know it was called Tengarong. You know? uh, then I looked through the books and I, I realized that's the name. So I asked my friends if they could find me a textile like that. So finally, uh, one day, somebody sent me a picture of a beautiful one, example. And I, of course, I was very interested. I asked the price and was beyond what I was willing to pay. So I said, let me think about it. Mm-hmm. Then Star, Star newspaper had a picture of Mahathir visiting the Islamic Museum and he was looking at one. Okay. So I said, oh, it must be an important piece. And so I called the, my friend back and said, is that piece still available? They said, so sorry, it's sold. Oh, no. <laughs> and I said, oh, no. So... <laughs> I said, at least could I go see it, right? So they said, okay, we still have the piece. The person who bought it hasn't taken it. So I flew from Taipei all the way to Tringanu just to see this piece. When I arrived in Tringanu, I said, show me the piece, show me the piece. I'm so excited to see it. He said, oh, the collector took it. Oh no, oh my goodness. And I said, I flew all this way and I cannot <laughs> see the textile. My God. So I was in my hotel room, kind of depressed. And I get a call from my friend in Trinkan. I said, John, what are you doing? I heard you're in town. I said, yeah. He said, come and see my textiles. I, you know, he's a weaver. So he, he, he wove some new textiles he wanted me to see. So I went over for tea. And then he said, oh, recently I bought some very nice textiles from my own collection. Would you like to see it? I said, okay. So the first piece he showed me was this very piece. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh my God, it was stunning, right? Mm. And I was so upset because I realized that the price that I thought was expensive was actually very cheap for what it is. Okay. So 
I was even more depressed. <laughs> At least you know the person who has it. You know, you can you still have some sort of access to it in that sense, I suppose. Then I went back to KL and I told my friend uh, about this story. And he says, oh, I have one. <gasps> I said, oh, really? So I went to his house. It was, you know, it was on his bed, right? So he unrolled it and I went, oh, oh my God, it's stunning, right? And then when he quoted me the price, it was 20 times the price of the, the one that I wanted to buy. And of course, I said, yes. <laughs> I bought it at this exorbitant price. When I was, I was staying at Majestic Hotel, I was having a shower and in my shower, I said, God, John, what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> you can't even afford this piece and you went to say yes to it. So in Taiwan, I decided, oh no, you know, I cannot afford to keep this piece because I have to pay my staff. Mm -hmm. So I need my staff more than the textile. So a friend from Singapore just flew up and she said, John, I'm in town. Let's have lunch. And guess what? I sold it to her. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I got my money back, but my interest in Tengarong got even greater. Mm -hmm. And so now I have 15 Tengarongs. <laughs> well done, John. And one will be ex exhibited in the exhibition. Uh, so it's interesting because when you do all this research, you know exactly what makes an A++ plus Tengarong because you become a connoisseur of it yeah. after comparing so many. So it's the one that has the Kerongsang uh, Berantai Songket pattern on the Lima on the uh, uh, woven strips. It's, it's in alternate bands, the pattern. That's the highest grade that I put. So I have A plus quality, not A plus plus. I missed the chance. But at least, you know, I learned about it. I know the, 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 the quality. And I think Museum Nigara has the A plus plus ones. Uh, Museum Nigara has some exquisite textiles because they were there early to buy, they got the best pieces. Mm -hmm. And of course, some were donated by royalty. Um, they, they were lucky that they, they put an investment on these textiles at that time. Right now, if you want to buy them, I came in too late. Okay. And that's why I'm, I'm, my collection is limited, but I, I think I made it up by um, you know, having other textiles to show. For example, the Tengarong probably was developed from the Sumatran Bidak. So I have the Bidak and the Tengarong. So you can make comparisons. So that's the difference with my collection, of my collection. Okay. And I do understand that, you know, you when, when you started doing this, right, you didn't realise how difficult it would be. Uh, you know, there were some challenges, of course. You know, I think one of the things that you said was the most difficult thing was getting people to take you seriously, to be open to listening to what, you know, they have to say about a culture that is not yours in that sense, right? Um, maybe you can tell me a little bit about that. I think they were suspicious about what I was doing. <laughs> okay. But they were thinking I'm doing this because I want to sell textiles, Malay textiles, but none of my textiles are for sale. Mm. Because if I sell them, the story will be broken. I'm interested in keeping the story and I'm interested in this collection being kept as a whole and I'm interested in finding a home for it in, in Malaysia. Um, so when I invite my Malay friends to my house and I share to them about my discoveries, um, and sometimes it's so touching, I myself 
burst into tears, you know, and they look at me crying. Why does John, they, they really see I truly love these textiles. And then, then they end up supporting me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, um, and that has made my journey in Malaysia so wonderful. Um, you know, I moved to Malaysia because um, the grab was so cheap. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't believe the price of the grab compared to the price of grabs in Singapore and in, in Taiwan, Taiwan right? yeah. so that one thing led to another then I found that the houses were very cheap <laughs> right and then the food was very cheap so I said why not move here because my company wasn't doing great you know I was selling Chinese art and antiques in Taiwan and then my, when my interest moved to uh, things Malay nobody was interested in that so, and, and I wasn't paying much attention to my Chinese art business. So business was going downhill. And so I thought maybe moving here would, would you know, help. So my friend said, no, that's not why you moved here. The reason why you moved here is because you grew up in Singapore in the 60s. And a lot of the things in Singapore that you experience, you can still experience in Malaysia and that, that that aspect of nostalgia is bringing you back. And I think that's true too. There are a lot of things like the food that I used to eat. You know, my grandma lived in the Malay Kampong. I miss that. Uh, the Malay Kampongs. There are no more Kampongs in Singapore. Yeah. You know, and there are the Kampongs here. This, this, the idyllic life in the countryside here is, I think it's what draws me here. And, um, and then all these friends who helped me. So for this exhibition, um, through Facebook and Instagram, I developed a team of people who came to help me do the show. Otherwise, the show would not have, you know, it would not have happened. So that's uh, another thing that is amazing. And of course, you're continuing with this, isn't it? And I, I'm, I'm so curious to know, because as you said, there's very little written sort of history about it, right? So you're going around collecting oral histories and and how do you, I mean, maybe you can just share a little bit about how you do that, how you verify, uh, you know, the facts that, you're, that you get, you know, how do you go about doing that? Uh, that's where I have a lot of challenges because I'm approaching it uh, through the viewpoint of an art historian. Yeah. So... There's no, there's no um, curriculum in the university for art history. It's only art. And art history is like part of the art program. <laughs> so, you know, art history is a science where you document things document scientifically and according to certain regular, you know, uh, methods. Um, so when I come here and I see the people calling a textile by a certain name, uh, for example, Kaling... Come, it's a, a embroidery done with lametta. In India, it's called uh, kamdani, and it's the lametta is called badla. So, I asked people, um, you know, when I, I I wrote the word kalinkam, I was criticized for it. They said, no, we use kalinkan with an n, not with an m. Mm. So I said, no, the dictionary uses kalinkam. There's no kalinkan in the dictionary. Oh, but, you know, in the palace, they also call it Kalinkan. But it doesn't, you see, in art history, it doesn't matter who calls it what. It's what's been documented that's important, right? That, that Otherwise, you know, anyone can say any name and anyone can follow any anyone. So there's no direction. So I, I follow the documented uh, the word, right? So when I, I say this, they say, oh, the dictionary is wrong. Mm. Or, 
or history made a mistake. So <laughs> that's what I I How I do you argue with that? <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know hard to. Um, so that's one of the the challenges I have. Okay. And, you know, a lot of the names like there's a batik, uh, there's a, a silkscreen print from Japan. It's called batik kotak. Okay. So I asked them, why do you call it batik kotak when it's a silkscreen print? They said because it looks like batik. I said okay, but it's not really batik, right? So you shouldn't call it batik because people might be confused. It's a print. Then I said, why do you use the word kotak? They said, oh, because it used to be sold in boxes. And then I'm saying, so where's the box? No one has been able to show me the box, right? And then I asked around and I realized that in, in, in Java, in Indonesia, some of the best batiks are sold in boxes, but they don't call it batik kotak. Mm. You know, it's so common to sell batik in boxes. Um, and they do have the box, but here they don't. So I said, why don't you? And then I found out later, through um, publication in Straits Times in the nineteen thirty four, that um, there was a Chinese man in, on Arab Street uh, that sold batiks uh, that he claims were color fast. Okay. And he actually he sold imitation batiks. So he 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 acknowledges that it's imitation batiks, but he claims that it was color fast. So so, so when people bought it and they washed it, all the color ran off. I see. So they sued him. And the police found out that he imported his batiks, his uh, silkscreen prints from Kobe, Japan. So when I looked at my, my it made me investigate. So I took all my uh, so-called batik kotaks out. And indeed, there was Japanese writing on it. So interesting. Okay. So I realized that these were imported from Japan for the Malay market, imitating batiks. And how do I know it's for the Malay market? Because... It had um, uh, rubber trees on it. It had pulasan on it as a, as a pattern. Things that Malay people can identify with. Right. They had the ipengs on it. Ipengs are the Victorian vases that the Malays use for their weddings. Mm-hmm. Um, the Paranakas also use it too. But the Paranakas don't use these silk batiks. It's too thin for them. So the Malays, also they don't use them as sarongs. They use them as kalubums. So they hang it around their head and it drapes around the shoulder. It's a sarong that they use as a shawl. So I'm trying to push for the name silkscreen printed Japanese sarongs rather than etikota. So I'm actually using my art historian uh, background to, to change the way people look at Malay textiles. Mm-hmm. And that's tough, I must imagine, because you're challenging all these, you know, really long-standing sort of traditions, and and yes. uh, yeah, and so and especially coming from, I suppose they consider you perhaps an outsider coming and telling them this. It might not be the uh, yes, probably not the easiest uh, t- no. challenge. Yeah, I mean, I've had people say, "Who are you to tell us what to wear?" Right? Because yeah. one time I commented, "Wouldn't it be nice if you look at all these old fashions and revived it?" Then I got this all this feedback to say, "Who are you?" You know, you're, you're Chinese. Why are you telling you. us uh, Malay people, you know, what to wear? And then, but I, I do have Malay friends who agree with me. They say, oh, wow, we could bring back all these old fashions. That's why I have, often I have fashion shows at my home uh, to show, you know, the old traditional textiles that could be used. So one of the purposes I'm trying to do with my collection is to build an archival repository where people can fall back on 
Um, for example, if you're a fashion designer and you decide to create a new design, but if you don't know that your ancestors already created it, you might have a hard time. And then after you created it, people find out that, oh, it's been done before. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, you should build on it and then go forward. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. So the, the tradition evolves. And I think it's important that we do this. And it's important that we have this archives because Malay people, um, they have a great history, but the documentation of it, you know, the Sejarah Malayos are not um, completely exact. A lot of it is mixed with myths and, 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 and fables and stories like that. Um, but uh, we do need accurate historical documentation. And that's what I'm trying to provide. Accurate meaning that you have old photographs to show, to prove it, and you have the actual textiles. So, you know, a lot of the matchings in my show, where I have a sarong and a kabaya or baju kurung and a sarong, but the greatest challenge for me for this show is how to match it. Most museums, you know, they usually, unless it's the same pattern and the same cloth, if they only have the top, they only exhibit the top. They don't have the confidence to exhibit it with the bottom because uh, they don't know how to match it. So I followed a lot of old photographs to do the matching. And, and sometimes uh, you have to consider taste as well. Mm -hmm. You know, the matchings, a lot of them, it's accurate, but it's in bad taste. Okay. Right. So sure. I have to consider it to be aesthetically beautiful. So you see my challenge yeah. um, that I'm putting on myself. I mean, I could show, show the authentic matching with bad taste and say that's the way it's done, right? But I want to show it in good taste. So I have that additional challenge. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of the things that you see in the exhibition uh, looks like it was put up so easily. Um, but uh, pinning up the textiles, sometimes to get it correct. You know, I, I took five hours to pin this sarong up. And then my Malay friend came and saw it and said, oh no, John, you know, usually we fold it from the right. Yours is from the left. So I had to take out the whole sarong again and repin it. <laughs> so, but it was a learning process. You know, I got to mm -hmm. learn more about, you know, how people wear their sarongs. And, uh, you know, I had a photo shoot where I had the, the tampan on the left, the tatampan is a little sash that you put on your shoulder if you are a servant of the Sultan and you're carrying the royal regalia. Okay. So um, I spent a lot of money on this photo shoot because I had to pay for the models and the, the dresses, the makeup artists, the venue. Uh, venue, I didn't have to pay. My friend loaned me the venue, uh, but I had videographers. So after that, people saw the picture and says, John, I think you got the tatampan the wrong way around. <laughs> so I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, invert the picture because the guys have always to be on the on the left and the women and the right. So if you invert the tatampan might be right, but the order of the sexes is wrong. So, oh, gosh. so I had to redo the whole shoot and I had so little time. Uh, and it was a stress financially too, because it was a lot of, you know, and also I treated them all for food and lunch and all that right mm -hmm. so uh, but i'm <laughs> insistent to get it correct i cannot you know i'm not i'm not taking this as uh, like a fashion designer where you have your artistic freedom um i have i'm i'm doing this for archival uh, uh development so yes. i have to do it correctly 
otherwise uh, people will say we cannot use this because it's not correct yeah and I mean that is that is what you want to do, right? You want people to understand this, to 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 really, um, I guess, take joy in its in in, the, in our history, uh, and to to actually learn about it because it's as you said, it's not really chronicle. So you know, and we don't really take textiles so seriously, do we? Unfortunately, but it tells so many stories, as you pointed out with your first story about the different connections of, uh, you know, Malay um, migration and intermarriage and all of that, and how we've come to you know be who we are today. And so this exhibition is. Really really fascinating. Um, and of course, you are also going to be having lots of um, talks, isn't it, throughout the, the few months. Um, uh, what, what can people expect? Well, I have a friend, uh, Cairo Anwar, who just did a book on Telepok. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard of Telepok? Unfortunately. Um, well, only when I was reading about you. So yes, only now. Okay, so um, I'm not surprised because I didn't know about it. And most people didn't know about it, right? So yeah. It's, it's a rarer form of Malay textile. Yeah. It's a rarer category because it was only reserved for royalty because it's so expensive to make. Mm. In India, they call it verak, <clears throat> where they take the gold leaf and adhere it directly to the cloth. In India, they would adhere it to Muslim from Bengal, uh, but it's a, an art done in Rajasthan. So a lot of the Indian royalty, they will have shawls with this verak. It's, it's very expensive. Or they have beautiful skirts with this verak. Um, and the Malays also had it. Um, and it, it, it's very expensive and used by the royalties of Selangor and uh, of Tringanu. And, and I have only three in my collection. That's how rare it is. Wow. And they were e- extremely expensive because most people don't want to part. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I'm, I, I want to share this so that people can revive the technique. So, I'm, ha- I'm so happy that when the Queen had this um, workshop in Pekan on, on Belopo, I immediately attended. And Nohaiza uh, Nordin in Tringanu is reviving the art. He's a woodcarver, so he, he carves all these stems that, that uh, are used to stem the glue, the gum Arabic, and then you use the gum Arabic to stem on the cloth. And before the gum dries, you quickly put the gold leaf on it, and then you rub it with a cowrie shell. Okay. So that's the technique. But you have to do it so precisely that the patterns all match up. So this requires a certain amount of focus that most of us don't have today because of the handful. Um, but it, it's, uh, it shows that the Malay people were very um, disciplined at that time to, to produce a textile like this. Mm-hmm. So these are some of the things that we will be seeing uh, at the exhibition, right? I did when I was reading about Talupo, you do, I did realize that it was one of the rarest, and as you said, I think possibly the most expensive, difficult textile to create, right, in, among your collection. So, right. I mean, rare chance to see it uh, right here in KL, uh, along with all the others. I'm really looking forward to it, John. The exhibition is going to start uh, this weekend, uh, and there will be talks throughout. And I think people can just head to uh, your website, isn't it, for all yes. the information. You can buy the tickets there. Buy the tickets, yeah. It's a third, uh, 35 ringgit, am I correct? Yes. 35 ringgit, okay. And, and the lectures are also available. The tickets are 30. And there is a brochure also for sale. Uh, there's no catalogue yet. It will be next year. The catalogue will be next year. Okay, excellent. Well, um, thank you so much, John, you know, for sharing. I mean, this is just a, a small snippet, you know, and uh, folks really need to head to that exhibition starting this weekend, uh, you know, for the full uh, experience of it. And uh, will you be around, I think, once in a while, you know, if folks would like yes, to meet you? Yes. 
And there will also be uh, guided tours. Okay. Uh, the free one, free guided tours will be led by my docents. And uh, for my full guided tour, they also have to purchase tickets. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, John, for speaking with me today. I've been speaking to John Ang. He's an art historian and collector. The Splendours of Malay World Textiles will kick off this weekend at Mnara Ken. It's from the 24th of July until the 30th of October. Uh, gallery hours are 10.30am to 6.30pm daily. Tickets are 35 ringgit for adults. And as John mentioned, you know, there will be talks throughout. So just head to johnang.com.my for more information to find out, you know, uh, the different schedules and to also get a glimpse you know of all these different textiles my thanks again to my guest this has been live and learn on the bigger picture bfm 89.9 thank you for listening to this podcast to find more great interviews go to bfm.my or find us on itunes bfm 89.9 the business station